But let me just read. I want to start by reading this passage. We're going to be today uh, in Luke 14, and we'll be next week in Luke 14. And then the plan for right now is then Trent will teach the following week from Luke 15. But we're going to stay in Luke 14 for the next two weeks. Um, Today we're going to look at verse 1 through verse 11. And as we just sang, I always find that it's amazing, the songs that Ernesto chooses two weeks ahead of time, and many times that's when I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to teach on, or what the message is going to be about exactly, but the songs tend to go right in hand. And that this is what, as we look at this today, and as we consider this passage, the goal is that we would truly pour contempt on all of our pride, that we would realize we are desperate for Jesus and we are desperate the only way that we can be satisfied is in Him so let me read the passage in English first and then grace in Spanish it says one Sabbath he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees they were watching him carefully and behold there was a man before him who had dropsy and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying it is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not but they remained silent Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Father God, please, Lord, we ask that you would take your word now, Lord. You have given to us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate it for us, Father, that these would not be um, my words, that they would not be my thoughts, Lord, and anything that I add to, Father, I pray that you would just, um, just cast it away, Father, that you would remove it. Lord, I pray that your word would go forward, I pray that it would deal with our hearts, Lord, that you would show us ourselves in this passage, Lord, and that it would change us, it would transform us, and that, um, Lord, that we would walk out of here different, Father, because of you and because of what you've done, because of who you are. So, Lord, I just ask that you would show that to us, Lord, and that we would be satisfied in you. Lord, please do that in us right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started to pray. We actually, we didn't have a message that we taught. We actually spent the time praying. And the focus of our prayer was, what is it going to look like specifically for us as a body right now who God has gathered, who God has brought here? What is it going to look like for us to be neighbor-focused? What is it going to look like for us to love our neighbor, for us to care for our neighbor, for us to show mercy to our neighbor, for us to proclaim the gospel and demonstrate the gospel to our neighbor? Matt taught the two weeks before that as he went through uh, Luke 10 about the Good Samaritan. He talked about Isaiah 58. And I hope that this moves us towards that as we consider what it might be that would hinder us from that. And as we read Isaiah 58 last week, I remember seeing verse 13 that I hadn't really seen or focused on before. And Isaiah said, when you turn back, when you turn from your ways, when you turn from your pleasures, when you actually make my Sabbath about me, when you do things the way that I want you to do them, it's like then... He says, then you're going to take delight in me. Then you're going to take delight in the Lord. And as I have looked at this passage this week and studied this, this is not what I was expecting to find, but I feel like God is answering this prayer. He's saying, this is what I want you to focus on. This is how I operate. This is how you're going to have satisfaction in me. And so we need to listen to what God has for us and that we would walk in that. And as I begin to look at this passage, the one thing that stood out for me is this idea. It says, one Sabbath. And as I started to try and understand this story, understand this interaction with Jesus, I understood that I don't understand much about the Sabbath. 
I know Nidia has talked to me about it before. Like, I really, she's asked me, we need to study the Sabbath. I want to better understand that. I really don't understand what's going on there. I don't understand how that applies to us now. And so as I started to look at this passage, like, we have got to understand the Sabbath biblically and then also culturally for us to understand what Jesus is saying here, for us to understand the situation and make application for our lives. So I want to take just a few minutes to give some background to that because this is what happens is on the Sabbath. What they're frustrated with Jesus for is because it's the Sabbath. And Jesus addresses what he addresses in regards to the Sabbath, in regards to these rules and regulations that they had put in place. So the Sabbath, anybody want to guess where it started? With creation, right? It's at the very beginning, chapter 2. God goes through day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. He creates man and it's, all those things are good and He creates man and it's like, well, this isn't good that man's alone and from that, he, out of man, He creates woman and then God sits back and He looks at all the creation and He's like, this is very good. He's like, I, I look at this creation and I am completely satisfied with my creation. It is perfect. I, I can just now sit back and I can enjoy it. God didn't need physical rest. He didn't have to stop from work, right? He was the sovereign God that created the universe. He actually just spoke it into being. He wasn't sitting, putting his feet up, taking a, a break. He was actually enjoying this creation that he had made. It was complete, it was perfect, and he was fully satisfied in it. If you look at Genesis 2, 1 through 3, you can see some of those things. He was finished with the heavens and the earth. And at the end in verse 3 it says, So he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. He sat back. He was satisfied. Look at what I've done. It's very good. Man was a part of that. Adam and Eve were there. Day six, they showed up. Day seven, he takes the Sabbath. Sin had not entered in. They got to participate in this Sabbath. They got to participate in this complete satisfaction that God had. They were a part of that. But then what happened? Then they chose, instead of relying on God's provision, instead of relying on His trusting in Him and what He had told them, they say, no, I'm going to go my way. I'm going to listen to the enemy and I'm going to go, I'm going to become self-focused instead of God-focused. And as they did that, what happened? As they did that, the relationships were broken. They were no longer able to participate in this Sabbath that God was enjoying, this rest, this, this enjoyment, this satisfaction of what God had created. And it's not, and I want to make sure we understand this, it's not that there was an absence of work, and that's why there was a Sabbath. God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and He told them to work it, and it produced for them. They were working before sin came in. Work is a good thing. But then after sin came in, He says, what, you're going to toil, and you're going to sweat, and you're going to strain, and try to make the earth produce to meet your needs. Now it's going to be difficult. Now it's going to be hard. You didn't rely on my provision. Now you have to work for your needs. So the fall ended that Sabbath rest. But then God came. He had developed this. He brought forth this nation of Israel, His people. He began to walk with them and He brought them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and He brings them into the land and He's about to bring them over into the Promised Land. And this land was associated with the Sabbath. This was going to be a Sabbath land. They were going to go back and they are going to be able to rest with Him. He was going to establish this kingdom again. And He gives them the commandments. He talks to Moses. He gives them the law. As you can see in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15, here it is where the Sabbath is instituted as an ordinance, as a command, as something that we should carry out. He says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant, your female servant may rest as well as you. Verse 15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. 
He's commanded them to keep this Sabbath day, that they would come to this point where they'd say, I completely trust, I completely am satisfied in you, and because I completely trust you, I have this freedom. I remember how you brought us out of slavery, you brought us out of Egypt, and you've established us as a people. And for us, as we do that, we're supposed to have this rest as well as a Sabbath. We're supposed to rest in Christ. We can look and observe the Sabbath and say, God, I trust your ways. It is not dependent on me. It does not rely on me, but I'm going to trust you. And in that, I have complete freedom. I can remember how I was a slave to sin, and you brought me out. I can remember what you did on the cross, and now I'm free. We can enjoy that freedom, and we can have this satisfaction in God. If we completely satisfied in Jesus, then we will authentically love others, and as we'll look next week, particularly the poor. Okay, that's my that's my statement for the next two weeks. As we, I'll say it another way: if our needs are entirely fulfilled in Jesus, then we will wholeheartedly serve others, specifically the vulnerable. Next week, we'll talk about specifically the poor, specifically the vulnerable. This week, we're going to say, are we satisfied in Christ? Do we have complete satisfaction? You guys have already heard, and I'll mention it a couple of times, about my job at the hospital. And part of that is we measure everything. Everything has to be measured. And one of the things we want to measure is satisfaction. I am responsible for what Trent's mom is going to get the pleasure to experience, which is a total joint program for hip replacements, knee replacements, okay? And at the end of that, we give a satisfaction survey. And these last few weeks have been difficult for me. Work has been pretty strained. And so I've been looking for one thing each day, like, okay, I need a reason to come back tomorrow. Just, just one thing. Just I'm looking for one thing for a reason to come back to work tomorrow. And it was about 4.30 on Wednesday. I was getting a little worried that I was going to have to continue to stay and stay and stay waiting for that good thing. But I get in the mail, I get my mail, and there's a satisfaction survey that's returned from someone in the program. And I look on it, and they've checked all five. Completely satisfied, completely satisfied, completely satisfied. All the areas, all the things we asked them about, they were completely satisfied. So the way that we rank that is, is one. If you rate a one, you're like, I'm not satisfied. A two, I'm, I'm partially satisfied. There were some things that were okay and some things that, no, not at all. Then a three is like, okay, I'm satisfied. It, it met my expectations. A four is like, well, I'm, I'm very satisfied. It was pretty good. And then a five, though, that's what we want. Completely, completely satisfied. So I want you guys to think about, if you were to receive a survey from God the Father, and then you would answer, are you completely, how are you satisfied in my son? How are you satisfied right now in Jesus? Are you satisfied in who he is? Are you satisfied in what he's done? Are you satisfied in how he walks with you and how he's spoken to you and how he cares for you? Would you be able to check, well, I'm somewhat satisfied. Sometimes I'm not satisfied at all. It depends on the situation. Or would you be able to say, I'm completely satisfied in Jesus Christ? Because it's our nature. Because of sin, it's our nature to be unsatisfied. I want something more. Complete satisfaction is something that I don't know that I've ever truly felt. I'm fully, completely, absolutely satisfied. We have this internal murmur. This internal voice, this internal sound, this internal noise inside of ourselves that just continues to, we continue to hear it, we can't drown it out. Whatever I do, whatever I experience, it's just there and it's kind of eating at me and I can't get it to be quiet and I can't suppress it. It's this complaint. It's just this complaint, this grumbling that's going on inside of myself. That word murmur, it's like a, it's a word that sounds the way it's, you hear it. Murmur, 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 murmur. And that that's what's going on in my heart telling me, Brit, I don't approve of you. Brit, you're not good enough. Brit, you're insufficient. Brit, you can't last. Brit, this is not what I want for you. Brit, you can do better. And I think we all have that voice somewhat. Some of us hear it more, some of us hear it less at different times based on what's going on. And we can hear that. And it's just this unsatisfaction that we have. And because of that, we have this need to prove ourselves. 
I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove that that voice, that that murmur, that that sound that I hear that won't go away, I've got to prove it wrong. And you guys know I was... I only watched one game with Larry. But I was interested in the finals, the NBA finals, the championship. Mostly because one of the stars, one of the greatest players on the court was my age and was still there playing basketball. And anybody that had gave me an ear, I would tell them about Tim Duncan, who, yeah, he's, he's, he's my age. That could be me out there on the court. But they didn't win. And he missed the shot at the very end. But I'm watching the highlights on my phone. And this is right after the game. And if you guys don't know, the, the Heat won. LeBron, LeBron's team won. And Magic Johnson, one of the greatest players ever, is interviewing LeBron James. And LeBron James is sitting there at the table. He's got on his championship t-shirt. He's got his hat and it's flipped up. He's got his MVP trophy. He's got the championship trophy. He's sitting there and he's just got the big fat smile on his face. He's still got sweat on his brow from all the work that he had just done. From, from going through this, it was game seven. He scored 30-something points. And here he is. He's reached the pinnacle. He's proved himself. And Magic Johnson says, LeBron, you may be the greatest player in the world right now. He says, so do you think you can do this next year? Can you repeat? Can you three-peat? You guys have done it twice in a row. Can you do it one more time? That was his question. LeBron James is sitting there. They won back-to-back championships. He's the MVP of the league. He's the greatest player in the entire world. And Magic Johnson says, can you do this again next year? you got to prove yourself. It's this thing that we hear. It's this thing that's in our culture. We can't get rid of that. Do you feel that? Do you feel the need in your life and what you're doing to prove yourself? To continue to show that you're worth it. To continue to show that you can do it. My tendency is to overwork. To overanalyze, overtry, be overconcerned with what's going on. It happened to me growing up. I watched my dad. He always said, if we can just make it to this point, if we can just always get it, if this will line up and that will line up and we'll get, I'll get this check and then we'll do this and then you know what, we're going to be in this place and then it'll be good. If we get around the corner, then it's going to be good. Everything will be right. And I heard that over and over and over again because we'd reach that point. We'd get to that point where you think, I'm going to be satisfied. I'm going to feel complete. And then we still had to get around the next corner. And I hear that in myself sometimes and it scares me. We, you guys know I'm, I'm, I'm I've been told I can transition to part-time work at my work. And it's been this three-month process because one of my managers decided to go have a baby and so she's on maternity leave. And i got to wait for her to come back. And so everybody knows this. My kids know this. Like We're waiting on Kim to come back. When Kim comes back, then Poppy can start to transition and go part-time. And so we had, with Melissa living with us and in our house, we had these chain links, these construction paper chain links that the girls made. And every day she cut off a link as she got closer and closer to the wedding. We watched this link, get sh- uh, chains get shorter and shorter and shorter until it was the wedding day. And I realized this might be an issue for me because Karina decided to make a link a chain for when my manager comes back and when I might can go part-time. Oh, mommy decided. She was just being obedient. Mommy told her to. <laughs> because everything, if you guys heard me, I said, well, when I get to go part-time or when this changes, man, it's going to be so different. And so many things I've, I've placed on that and said, well, when I have this time, when I can have Mondays and Fridays to devote to the body and do, be in the neighborhood, man, that's going to be so much different. It's going to be so much better. And I'm waiting on that. I'm waiting on that. And you know what? I'm going to get there. And I'm still going to be unsatisfied. I'm still not going to feel complete. So do you overwork? How do you overwork? How do you overachieve? How do you try to prove yourself? And some of you might say, well, I don't try to prove myself. I actually underwork. (laughs) And I would say it's for the same reasons. I, I, I try to underachieve because if I get out there, see, I have this fear. I hear this murmur inside that I'm a failure and that I can't make it and that I can't prove myself. And you know what? I'm just not going to try. I'm just not going to get out there because if I get out there and I fail, I'm going to see that I was actually right. See, my theory was right. I'm a failure. And I don't want to prove to myself that I'm a failure. I'd rather just hear that voice and deny it than actually be confronted by it and unable to, to say that I'm not. So either way, if we're not satisfied in Jesus, we're going to try and drown that out 
we're going to try and ignore it, we're going to try and prove that it's wrong. We can turn to substances, we can fill our lives with hobbies, we can fill our lives with activities, we can fill our lives with people, we can fill our lives and turn to our education, we can turn to our children, our families, we can put everything on that. I'm going to be satisfied if this goes well. We can even turn to religious activities. We can turn to going to church. We can turn to praying. We can turn to reading our Bible. We can turn to doing all these things so that I'm going to feel better about myself because I've done the Christian checklist and I've done all the things I'm supposed to be and hopefully this, this feeling that I have is going to go away. We can fill our head with knowledge about God. It may not change our satisfaction. We can be busy for God. It may not change our satisfaction unless we're satisfied in Jesus. And when you turn to these things, it's just keeping you from being satisfied in Christ. And so all that to think about now as we read this passage. Alright? What are you trying to prove in your life? Because as we get here in this passage, Jesus is going to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. This is the Pharisee of the Pharisees. This is a guy that had an amazing position of respect and status in Israel. The Pharisees, they were this religious leaders that they, they focused on the strict observance of the Jewish law. The strict observance of every law that had been created and they were going to make sure that they observed it and that other people observed it. And they were actually, they would have been called conservative. They wanted to go back to the way things were. Like Israel was a mess. They were occupied. Jerusalem was occupied. And they thought if we can go back to the law, if we can, if we can just stick to the law and to be the way, the way things were, then, then actually God will restore Israel. God will restore us and He'll bring this kingdom. And so they had a comprehensive set of rules and practices to oversee every aspect of their life. Every aspect. Every part of their life. There was a rule to go with it. Okay? And they called these commands. Alright? There are mitzvahs. You guys have heard of a mitzvah, a bar mitzvah? That's a command. A mitzvah is a command. And so all of these commands were housed in this document, housed in this collection called the halakha. All right. Don't say that if you have a cold, it'll result in something nasty, right? But halakha, okay? And within the halakha, there were three categories. There was the first, this, the law that came from the Torah, the law that came from the first five books of the Bible. As, as, as God gave the law to Moses, they, they took that law from the first five books, and that was the first part of the halakha, was from the Torah. These were biblical laws that came from God that were in the scriptures. There were 613 of them. Some were negative, some were positive, some were don't do this, some were do this. But these were from God's word. That was the first section. But then there was a second section in between, and these were rules and regulations, mitzvahs, commands, that the Pharisees or the rabbis had instituted. And of those, and there were this, this part of them that actually related to the Torah, so they would see a command in the Torah, and then they make a law about that law to actually keep you from breaking that law. So it was like a, a law that acted as a hedge or acted as protection. So they knew that you couldn't work on the Sabbath, so the Pharisees decided, we're going to add this law that you can't pick up a pencil or a hammer, because if you pick up a pencil or a hammer, even though that's not work, you might forget about it, and you might actually use a pencil or hammer, and then you'd actually break God's law. So let's create rules and laws and obligations that we have to keep in order to keep us from breaking God's law. But then part of these rules and regulations from the Pharisees, some of them had nothing to do with the Torah. Some were related to the Torah and to keep it from breaking God's laws. And some were just what the Pharisees thought, what the rabbis thought were appropriate, what they put in place. They worked for their society. Okay? And then the third section. Alright, so God's law, the Pharisees' laws that they added, or the rabbis added. And then third was what came from tradition. Okay, so they had gone through and there were these religious practices that they continued to do and they got to a point and says, when someone asked them, so why do you do this? And they say, and this is the worst thing to hear at work, well, this is the way we've always done it. And nobody has any idea why we do what we do, but this is the way I was taught, this is the way we've always done it, and no one has an idea why they do it. So as they would go through this, these things became part of this halakha as well. They became part of this Jewish law. 
as I mentioned about a bar mitzvah, a bar mitzvah would fall in this category, okay? You won't find the bar mitzvah in the Torah, you won't find the bar mitzvah created by the rabbis. The bar mitzvah was a tradition that later became a mitzvah, later became a command because they continued to do it, continued to do it, continued to do it. And when you understand this, and I just think this is interesting, so it's a bit fact for you guys. Bar mitzvah literally means when, when a boy becomes 13, now he's bar, he's under, he's under the commands. He's actually now under the law. At 12, he wasn't under the law. Now at 13, he's responsible and accountable, and he's literally under the law. And so that's what that indicates. That's what that shows. You guys feel smarter? Some of you know. Okay. The problem with the Jewish law, the problem with these three sections were that they were all equally authoritative. They saw them all as equally inspired. They, had, they were equally binding. Whether it was from God's word, whether it was from the Pharisees and the rabbis, or whether it was from tradition, they were equally binding, equally authoritative. The only difference was the punishment. There was a stricter punishment if you broke laws from the Torah versus breaking laws from the rabbis. But many scholars will say that those laws that the rabbis created became even higher and more aware, more people were under them more than they even were God's law. Jesus says, they, talking about the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The Pharisees would add these laws, they instituted these additional laws, they put them on people's shoulders, they, this burden that was on them. And yet they had the power to change it. They, had, they couldn't move a finger actually to change the law. They just left them on people to hold people down, to add these additional things. And the Sabbath... One Sabbath day, he went to the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. The Sabbath was the most important ordinance, the most important thing that was in the Jewish law. This was their most important celebration. It was more important than the Day of Atonement, more important than everything was this idea and the regulations, the rules around the Sabbath. And as we looked, God's law from the Torah, as you look at the Sabbath and you look at this command, it's that the command was not to work. So the Pharisees, they didn't feel comfortable with that. So they established 39 categories of work. They wanted to find what was work and what wasn't work. And they gave these 39 categories. These were forbidden acts. They defined what work was for everyone so they wouldn't do it. They had these laws that regarding what a burden was. And it depended on how heavy something was or how useful something was. And typically if something weighed more than a dried fig, you couldn't pick it up on the Sabbath. That was considered work. And it could be less than a dry fig, but if it was something that was useful, like a pencil or like a piece of paper, that could be used for something else, that would have been forbidden too because you could possibly work with it. So if it was too heavy or if it was useful, you couldn't pick it up. They even had these rules and regulations for when your house was on fire. So if your house caught on fire on the Sabbath, you could not, you could only go in and get certain articles of clothing or certain items that you could retrieve from your house. Because if you did that, it would be work. If you, if you took things out of your house, it would be work and you'd break the Sabbath. And what's crazy as you read this, a Gentile, of course, because they weren't observing the Sabbath, a Gentile could run into your house and could save your things and could extinguish the flames. But as a Jew, you couldn't ask a Gentile to do that because then that would be getting them to work. Okay? But if the Gentile did it on their own, you were safe. That's how you put the fire out. So you kind of had to stand there by your house watching it burn down and, you know, hoping that a Gentile would come by and, and, and direct them into your house to save your things and to put out the fire. But hopefully you guys get this, right? That's just a, a brief understanding of the Sabbath, what God intended it for. And then as we look at this in this time and when Jesus was walking and going to the house of the Pharisees, what were they doing about the Sabbath? How were they observing the Sabbath? What did they expect about the Sabbath? How had they put these rules into place? And I think, and I'm, I took that time because it's important. I took that time to go through that because you guys need to understand if we don't know that and have a, a general grasp of that, this doesn't make much sense. It's not going to mean to us what the author intended it to mean. And so look at the end of verse 1. It says they were watching him carefully. 
The Pharisees were walking with Jesus, going to this house, and they were watching him carefully. Literally, they were trying to trap him. They were going to watch him, and they were going to watch and see what he did. And as soon as he broke the law, then they were going to condemn him, and they were going to identify him as a lawbreaker. They were after him, and they were waiting, and they were watching, and they were just going to pounce on him and say, Oh, you broke the law. We got you. You know, you don't, you're not honoring this Jewish law. You're not honoring what the rabbis have said. And why did they want to do that? Why, did they, why were they watching him like that? Why were they... In- Anybody got an idea? Everything that he represented would tear down their system. Everything that he represented, he would leave them without a system. He would invade their way of life. He would change their status. They, they would lose all of these rules, these additional rules that they had established so that they could feel good about themselves, so they could respond to this, this murmur inside and I can feel better about myself and I can continue to do these things and look at me and look at all the people who can't do it because you're outside of this box that I've created and all these regulations and rules that I've created. And they were going to take that away from, him, away from them. And in their intent to trap Jesus, he clearly demonstrates how this system that they put in place is broken and how it's contradictory. And then he shows them the motivation behind this. He shows them the motivation behind this is self-righteousness and a self-focus. So look at what happens. Verse 2. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. So that's the situation. Jesus walks upon this man with these other Pharisees going to the ruler of the Pharisees' house and he has dropsy. Dropsy is a a systemic, generalized um, inflammation and swelling. If you guys have heard of lymphedema today, it's something similar to that. It's where the tissue or a body cavity is so full of fluid, the body can't process it, that it swells and it actually weeps. There's so much fluid in your tissue that it weeps out. So this, this man would have been just leaking fluid continuously. His body couldn't handle it. He had heart failure. His heart wasn't pumping hard enough. And he was just swollen, debilitated, and just leaking fluid out of his skin. And Jesus' question is, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? Jesus knew the answer. He knew that the Jewish law was very clear that you could not provide medical care for an individual. You couldn't provide relief or help for an individual unless it was life-threatening on the Sabbath. The only way you could get involved, the only way you could intervene was if their life was at stake and if you didn't get involved, they were going to die. Otherwise, you had to wait till the Sabbath passed. You could treat them the next day. You could show mercy to them the next day, but not on God's day, not on the Sabbath. So if you broke your bone on the Sabbath, if Trent's mom would have broken her hip on the Sabbath, she'd have had to wait for care, wait for medication, wait to be put in a bed and taken care of until the Sabbath is over. You're going to suffer right now. It'll be over soon. But when the Sabbath is over, when we're done honoring God, then we're going to care for you and meet your needs. And then we'll take care of you. Right? It puts it into context when we think about it that way. And so what did the Pharisees do? It says, they remained silent. Now, I don't think they were silent because they didn't have anything to say. He says, is this lawful? They know it's not lawful. They're sitting there and they're like, okay, don't say anything. Don't tell him that it's unlawful to do that because we want him to break the law. We're waiting. We're watching. We want him to do this so we can condemn him, so we can show that he's a lawbreaker. Don't say anything. Just wait and watch and we're going to catch him in it. So they remain silent. And then what does Jesus do? He healed him. And literally in the... In the Greek it says he made him whole, he made him complete. And then it says that he sent him away, or literally he gave him freedom. So I'm going to make you whole, you have this, you're suffering, you're, you're in this position, and I'm going to make you whole, and I'm going to give you freedom. I'm going to send you away. And that's what Jesus did to this man. And you've got to think that then the, the Pharisees were taking a deep breath, just ready to come down on him, ready to tell him what he had just done, how he had broken the law. And then Jesus responds, and you look in verse 5. Before they respond to him, he says, And he said to them, Which of you, 
having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And then verse 6, and they could not reply to these things. So Jesus gives an explanation. Before they condemn him, he says, you know what, let me explain myself. Let me tell you, I'm going to show you, and I'm going to convince you that your law, this Jewish law, this, this additional law that you've added, I'm going to show you that it's contradictory to God's law. And he says, if you had this ox that had fallen into a well, and then he also says, or a son, he says, wouldn't you pull him out immediately? And now the situation that he's referring to is Jesus knows in the Jewish law, they had not written anything about coming to the aid of an animal. There was no law forbidding them to come to the aid of an animal. There were laws forbidding them to come to the aid of a human being, but not to an animal. And then Jesus in this well, it's not just their ox. And this ox would have been integral to their life. It was integral to their livelihood. They needed this ox. If they lost this ox, this was an agrarian society. They were farmers. Everything, their worth, their wealth came from the earth. If they lost their ox, this animal of burden, it would be huge financially. They might be on the streets. They might lose what they had. And so Jesus says, you go to this well, there's your ox. There's nothing against that in the law for you to pull them out. He's like, but then you see your son there in that well. Your son. He's down in the well with your ox. Are you going to go in there and you're going to pull your ox out and look at your son who's sitting there with the ox and say, you know what, son, I'm sorry that you're at the bottom of this well. I'm sorry that your life is in danger. I'm sorry that you're suffering. I'm going to pull the ox out and I'll see you tomorrow. I'll be back for you, but I'm going to take care of my ox. Could you guys imagine doing that? I'm going to go save the dog <laughs> and leave my child suffering because God's law forbids me from helping my child but it doesn't forbid me from helping this ox or this law that they have. Jesus wasn't saying that getting the ox was wrong. But he says, I think you should care for this human being this human being that I just healed, you should care for them in the same way that you would at least care for this animal. This human being that is, that is my creation, that is made in my image, how could you not show them mercy just the same way you would show this animal mercy? The Pharisees' self-imposed and their self-exalting rules and regulations kept them from showing mercy to this man that Jesus healed. I can't do it. It's against the regulations. I'm not going to help this man. And so I want you guys to think about what rules, what regulations, what traditions do you require of yourself and then do you require of others that keep you from loving other people, that keep you to coming to the aid, that keep you from showing mercy, that keep you from interacting in other people's lives. Do you do what you do because it's biblical? Do you think what you think because it's biblical? Or do you do it because, you know what, that's just the way I've always seen it done. And that's the way I've always seen it done in the church. And that's the way I've always seen it done with righteous people. And I'm not saying that everything we do is wrong. But we need to be considering that and saying, do I have a biblical reason to do what I do and to think the way that I think? Or do I just do this because somebody told me and I hope that it was according to the scripture? Or it's just the way we've always done it? Are you so worried with yourself? Where you stand, how you're performing, how you compare, that you don't have time to love others. I'm so focused on me improving myself and my performance that I don't have time to look at the person next to me that's suffering. Because as I take care of myself, I feel better about myself. That murmur starts to go away. I start to feel more satisfied. The more I, better I feel about myself as I prove myself. So they could not reply to these things. There was no defense or justification to this contrary, contradictory system they had put in place. They weren't loving their neighbor. And then Jesus cuts right to the motivation. He cuts right to the reason behind what they did. Did you look at the next section of passage, verse 7? It says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. 
And a quick thing I want to say is that Jesus watched them, considered them, he watched their lives, he watched what they were doing, and he waited for the moment, when, based on their lives, based on how they were behaving, then I'm going to intervene and I'm going to show them God's word. I'm going to show them the truth, right? He waited, he waited for the right time, and then he, he stepped in and he spoke to them and he brought this example. And he says, saying to them in verse 8, he says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. Verse 9, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. In this culture, the meal, the table, was a hugely important place. Who you sat down with the table, who you sat down at the table with was who you identified with. You're saying, we're together, we're on the same status, we're of the same uh, standing and culture in our society. If I sit at the table with you, it means that we have a shared identity. Who did Jesus sit with? He sat with the outcasts, the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. And he said, look look at this. He's a friend of these people, right? He was judged because of who he identified with. And so here they are, the Pharisees, sitting down with other Pharisees. They've been invited to the chief Pharisee's house and they're all sitting at the table. And Jesus is like... Look at how you take the seats of honor. You guys, you guys are moving around, even amongst yourself. You're trying to find what's the position, what's the chair, what's the seat that has the most honor where I'm going to be recognized. I'm, I'm with my peers. I'm with these other Pharisees. We're above everybody else in the culture and the society, but even within us, I want to make sure I have the best seat at the table because I want to receive that honor. And again, that's hard for us to understand because that doesn't mean very much to us. Right? But Grace was sharing me about her mom in Peru and how when she hosts people, she says, that seat's for you. No, you right there and you right here and you, because it matters, okay? It means something about where you sit. And the best example, if anyone wasn't there last week, you missed a wonderful wedding. But then when we had the reception for Javon and Melissa, there was this table, actually there were two tables, okay? One, or, or three tables, Two for the wedding party, and then one for the, the kids, right? But what did they have on the tables? They had a table, uh, uh, what do you call this? Uh, somebody help me. Place cards, right? Place cards identifying who was going to sit where, explaining to other people, so that, so that as we walked in, we knew, okay, that table's reserved for specific people. That table is reserved for those that were in the wedding party. It's, it's, a, it's a place of honor to honor them as they've been involved in Melissa and Jovan's life. And this is the place where they're going to sit. And we know as we walk there and we see these place cards, like, okay, I'm not going to sit there. That would be really embarrassing if you would have sat down there and you'd have sat in Jovan and Melissa's place and they had to come and say, hey, uh, Britt, can, you got to go to the other table, right? It would have been pretty embarrassing. And, and this is what... It would have been the same case, but they didn't have place cards, okay? But these Pharisees are running around and trying to find the best seat. They want to exalt themselves. They want to feel better about themselves. And what I think Jesus is communicating here, He's like, when you come to my table, when you come to my banquet, when you're my guest, when I've invited you, you need to wait for the host to tell you where to sit. You are a guest. I'm the host. I would not go to someone else's party and assume the highest place. I would go to the party and I'd wait on the host. And Jesus is saying, you don't get to make your own rules. You don't get to choose your place. Wait for the host to tell you where to sit. The host makes the decision, not the guest. Jovan and Melissa, they made the decision who was going to sit at this table, not us. I didn't get to come in and decide where I was going to sit. This is the host banquet, not yours. And seating and honor will be according to the host criteria, not the guest criteria. It will be according to the host laws, not according to my laws or your laws. And who are we to come to God's table, to come to His banquet, to be invited in by Him, and then say, you know what? I'm going to rearrange the seating chart here. 
God, I know you've established us a certain way. I know you communicate this in your word, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rearrange the seating chart because I want to lift myself up because, you know, I've got this nagging murmur that won't go away and I can't be satisfied and I just need to do something to get rid of it. And then Jesus teaches one of the most clear and repeated principles in Scripture at verse 11. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This, this occurs throughout Scripture, this principle, this idea. He's literally saying, Understand your place, bring yourself low. And if you exalt yourself, it's going to be temporary and you're deceived. It won't last. He actually says, if you exalt yourself, I'm going to humble you. And he says, but if you humble yourself, then I'm going to exalt you. Then I'll give you this place at the table. Then I'll bring you to dine with me. We can't exalt ourselves. We can't exalt each other. To be exalted, you have to have someone that is highly exalted and more exalted than you are. Right? I can't be exalted unless someone more exalted than me exalts me and lifts me up. That's the way it works. You have to have that to be able to give it to other people. And we don't have it. But God has it. And so those are the gospel terms. That we would realize that me, that you, that all of us are more dreadfully sinful than we ever dared imagine. We're more desperate, we're more dependent on God to rescue us than we ever understood. And then as we realize that, as we experience that, the reality of that, then we can see that God loved us, loves us, more than we ever dreamed. But we have a broken heart. We can't find rest completely in Christ. Sin entered in, my relationship with God is broken, my relationship with others is broken, but God wants to come in and He wants to repair that. He wants to deal with this internal murmur, this thing that won't go away inside of me. I disapprove of myself, I'm questioning myself, I'm questioning my identity, I'm questioning my worth, and God says, no, I want to address that. You can't address it, I can address it. We can't deal with it just as the Pharisees dealt with it. We have to deal with it a different way. When Annalise was born, my, my last, my final, my number four, we had no issues with any other baby. And we're there at the hospital. And on the fourth child, people don't really show up like they did for one and two, you know? You're there, you're by yourself. And the second day, the pediatrician comes in. The pediatrician is examining Annalise. And I remember, as clear as day, I remember him has a stethoscope, and he's listening to her, and he does on the front, and he does on the back. And I remember his face going... And his eyes moved. And, oh, I was like, oh, I know that look. I work at what's going on. And he, he listens again. He's like, well, I'm like, what's going on? What's the problem? What, I see that you heard something. He's like, well, she has a murmur. I'm like, a murmur? I'm in rehab. I don't understand what a murmur is. So what's a murmur? He's like, well, it's the sound that is, her heart is making as it's misfiring in a sense. He says, what probably is the case is that when her heart forms, she has this thing called ASD atrial septal defect and when her heart formed instead of it having four separate and distinct chambers the in between where the two atriums are separated he's like it didn't form it didn't complete and there's a hole in her heart and as the blood comes in it moves to the wrong chamber and it goes through that hole and that hole is tiny and as the blood rushes through that hole i can hear it and it makes this abnormal sound he's like her heart's in a sense it's broken it's not complete and I'm like, well, what are we going to do about it? What can we do about it? Or what's going to happen? He's like, well, he's like, hopefully we can do nothing and she'll continue to develop and the heart will actually close. Where it was meant to close, where that hole is, it will close. He's like, but she could have heart failure. She could have failure to thrive. Her blood would be deoxygenated. And he says, if that's the case, then we'll need to go in. And we'll need to do a procedure. And he's like, what we'll do first is we'll go and we'll put a, a shunt. We'll, we'll block that hole and hope that the heart continues to develop and it actually closes. If she starts not to do well, we're going to do that and we'll put in a shunt. And then when she gets at a later age, at a later time, we'll go in and we'll surgically repair it and we'll finish it. But she's got to develop and grow first before we would finalize it, before it would be complete. And Grace told me to tell you guys Annalise's heart. It, it closed up. She's good. <laughs> okay. I'm telling her this analogy. She's like, 
Is she okay? Is no, yeah, no, she's fine. She's fine. And I, I forget to tell that part. But my question was, how can it be repaired? What are we going to do? And for us, for our hearts, for this murmur that we have, that I don't meet the requirement, that I'm not good enough, that I can't, I'm not sufficient, there's no natural way that that's going to go away. There's no natural way for that to be repaired. The only way is to have a costly procedure, a very skilled procedure done. It's the most costly procedure that's ever been done. And that's that Jesus Christ went to the cross and He came, He pursued us, He went in our place, He lived the life that we should have lived, He went to the cross and paid our debt. He paid for that hole in our heart. And the work that He did on the cross, the Gospel can repair our hearts. In some ways, it's like that He can put this shunt that in one day when we're with God and we experience this Sabbath and we experience this complete rest with Him and this complete trust with God in a new heaven and a new earth, we'll have a brand new heart. But right now, Jesus comes and the cross repairs it. The cross... So are you willing? Are you willing to sign the consent to go under that procedure? Are you willing to allow the gospel to come into your life? Are you willing to say, I can't do this. God, you have to do this. It doesn't matter how good I am, how much I perform, how much I prove myself. As we just sang, that I would pour contempt on all my pride. I can't create laws. I can't do anything that's going to take care of this murmur that I have. God, you have to repair this. You have to heal me. And Jesus, He's the object of our rest. He's the one we trust. He's the one that gives us freedom. He is our Sabbath. So from that place, where our needs are entirely fulfilled in Jesus, when there's no need for self-proving, there's no need for approval, then we can actually think about others because we're not so concerned about ourselves. If I'm fully and completely satisfied in Jesus Christ and I don't have to prove myself my identity is in Him and not what I'm doing, then I'm free. He gives me that freedom that I can go and that I can love others, that I can proclaim His gospel and that I can demonstrate His gospel. I can talk about and share and show what He's done for me. And next week, as we move to verse 12 through 24, We'll see that that specifically occurs or with a priority with a priority, or we prioritize that with the poor, with the vulnerable. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would just make your word clear to us. Lord, that we would consider it, that we would... Just saturate ourselves in it, Father. Lord, and that we would let it work in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would show us what it is in our lives as a church, as a body, as a family, Lord, that keeps us from being satisfied in you. What is it that we're looking for satisfaction in that keeps us from being satisfied in you? Lord, show us that as a body. Show us that as a family. But show us that too as individuals, Lord. When we're in that quiet place, when we're alone with you, Lord, what is it that that murmur, Lord, help us to deal with that. Lord, help us to bring that to you. Lord, because you are faithful and you are good and you promise that you will heal us. So Lord, I pray that we will be able to check off that we are completely satisfied in you, Father. Lord, I pray that you would give us satisfaction in nothing else but only you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.